anytime someone was interested, I would say, just come to my bee yard, come to my house. A bee yard's called an apiary. And um, I said, just come to my bee yard. I'll put a veil on them, put gloves on them. We'll go out to the bee yard, open up a box. And I can usually tell within three seconds whether somebody would be a beekeeper or not. It's when you take that lid off and bees start flying. If people start swatting their hands or their head goes back in fear, they're gonna have to work hard at being a beekeeper. Other people that are so interested in it, they lean forward and stick their face into the bunch of bees. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we talk about my favorite subject, animals. Today is a really fun uh, version of Animal Tales. We're going to talk about beekeeping with a fellow who is incredibly knowledgeable. Um, I, I wouldn't have even had to talk on the podcast. He was uh, just on a roll, and it's not a topic I know a lot about, so it was really informative and a lot of fun. And he's even going to talk to us about what you could do if you don't want to be a bee, if you don't want to be a beekeeper, <laughs> um, how you can help out and the sustainability of it, how to find the right honey. Um, bees, I mean, they're incredibly fascinating. And I'm joined today, um, I have a special co-host, Tommy Fahey, who's the co-host on my uh, Dog on Good Information podcast. So it was fun to have Tommy with me as well. So get ready to be entertained by Ben Cooper, the beekeeper. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Heidi. I'm really excited about this because um, I think it's it's a very current topic, a hot topic. And frankly, I know very little about it. Most of my listeners know I train horses and animals like that, as well as dogs. So this is a whole new realm. And um, to talk with a beekeeper and find out what that's all about. You know, when I was growing up, bees were something we were afraid of, and you'd try to swat them and kill them. And now you keep hearing, don't kill the bees. We need the pollen. They pollinate. And so tell us about that. Give us the, you know, walk us through the ABCs of bees and beekeeping and why they're so important. Well, I'll, I'll tell you and start off by how I got started. Sure. I'm one of these people that if all the fish in a school is going in one direction, I go in the opposite direction. And oh, that's uh, Tommy and I, too. <laughs> great. We'll get a lot great. Remember Charles Corral, the road left. Yes. That, that's how, how I do it. I grew up on a dairy farm, a uh, small family farm in western Pennsylvania, and was involved with 4-H. Oh, and awesome. 4-H gets kids at a young age involved in a lot of different things, but it helped me in uh, leadership roles and other uh, other activities that allowed me to expand my horizons much further than uh, a young 10, 12-year-old kid would realize. But uh, nobody in the entire county that I grew up in in 4-H was a beekeeper. Yeah. And my grandfather had an old hive. And it had died out years before. I never remember him actively uh, being involved with uh, having bees, but but I wanted to try something new. I'm that person and I'll try something new. If I like it, I stick with it. If I don't, I drop it like a bad habit and move on. And so I started at the age of 14 getting a package of bees. When I say a package, just imagine a wooden box with four wooden sides and screens <laughs> on uh, the bigger portions for air to flow. Wow. And I got called out of the office, uh, out of school classroom into the office, um, you know, in that day, day and age when the, um, somebody announcement would come, would you send Ben Cooper to the principal? <laughs> yes. Everybody uh -oh. What I did, and I wondered what I did, but I had ordered a package of bees through a uh, Montgomery Ward's farm and ranch catalog uh, through the mail. And the post office called the school and said, my bees were in and I needed to come get them. And so <laughs> oh, that's funny. A 14 year old at school. What do you do? Um, I went up to my cousin who drove 
and he had a 69 charger. I remember a, a, a real fancy car. I think he got four miles to the gallon. And I just said, <laughs> would you like to get out of school early? And that's all I needed to say. And I didn't tell him why. I said, I need to go pick something up at the post office. And when we went and he saw what I was picking up, a package of live bees, he says, that's not going into my car. <laughs> so we put it in a trunk, not a good place on a hot day, but we only had a few miles to go. And so that started my beekeeping um desire and hobby and it's just grown from then uh to now um and i i love beekeeping but i love working with and mentoring and helping new beekeepers i don't need 40 50 100 hives i'd rather see um 20 people a year pick up beekeeping and be successful at it and have it as a sustaining part of of their world as well. So that's kind of the start of how I migrated into it. And, um, and I've had it not every year, but going through college, it's hard to be away at school and take care of bees at different times. But, but pretty much I've always kept going back to beekeeping. And it's just a fascinating um, world to be involved with. When you picked up the bees, is it was it as simple as going over to where your grandfather had a defunct hive and restarting it? Or did you just go set it up somewhere else? What, what was involved in that? Well... I didn't know any better. I had no mentors. I asked my grandfather for help and he said um, that he wouldn't give me any, <laughs> which translated means he really didn't know much about it either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't willing to let me know that. So I had some wooden boxes. I had some of the equipment. I had to get a smoker and uh, um, a, the protective gear, uh, the coveralls with the veil so that I wouldn't get stung. And even though, just so you know, you still can get stung wearing all the protective gears uh, that you can have. Uh, maybe if you had like an Apollo mission moon suit on, uh, it might fully protect you. But uh, then you cannot pick things up. It's hard because you have no dexterity. But uh, I put them in the same location where he had them. Okay. Uh, and so I figured, you know, that was okay. And made a ton of mistakes probably every mistake you can make i lost bees and had to get new ones and i learned how to catch swarms the wrong way and then learned how to catch them the right <laughs> way a little uh, learning curve there huh? familiar with that it's tough because um i had no mentor i guess that's what motivates me wanting to be a mentor to as many people that need it uh sure. with it and so I talk with people outside of the U.S. sometimes on giving them advice um, on their bees. And and there's different types of bees. There's some uh, species of bees. You've heard of Africanized bees. Mm -hmm. We don't want to take care of any of those uh, because they just have a mean streak uh, that can be nasty. Okay. But, um, well, before you, we, we'll get into that because I want to know about okay. different bees, but... I want to let our listeners know, because this is just an audio podcast, that you come from a time, I'm not sure how old you are, but I can tell you come from a time when, at 14, you weren't able to just get on the internet like we are now. You would what? have had to go check out a book or something and try to learn. It wasn't like there were threads or places online you were going to find this stuff. So I find yeah. that interesting, too. You really were on your own, and you didn't even have an online mentor. This would have been the early 70s yeah. whenever I was getting involved with that. And, and yeah, no internet and, <laughs> and maybe a check a book out of the school library. And that was about it. And nobody to ask. I knew of other people, but a 14-year-old back in the day that a long-distance phone call on a party line phone, um, you didn't get to, as a teenager, a young teenager, you didn't get to hog the phone line too yeah. often. Yeah, yeah wasn't even aware even if there was beekeeping associations i wasn't old enough to drive and my dad was not going to be interested in taking me to some place like that this had no interest 
none of the family that I grew up with had any interest in in beekeeping. So, uh, yeah, so it was pretty much um, learn as you go. Yeah, yeah. Tommy, uh, we're, you know, we're horse people and dog people in that. What's your... What's your thought about beekeeping? Have you have any experience? I've never experienced it. Um, I'm interested. You're you're now an instructor of beekeeping. Yes. So how did that evolve? Um, because there was different people that I, anytime someone was interested, I would say, just come to my bee yard. Come to my house. A bee yard's called an apiary. And um, I said, just come to my bee yard. I'll put a veil on them, put gloves on them. We'll go out to the bee yard, open up a box. And I can usually tell within three seconds whether somebody would be a beekeeper or not. It's when you take that lid off and bees start flying. If people start swatting their hands or their head goes back in fear, they're going to have to work hard at being a beekeeper. Other people that are so interested in it they lean forward and stick their face into the bunch of bees and so it's real easy to tell uh, a positive uh, and some people have to actually work at it and so uh, one of the other things is some people actually don't know that they're they have anaphylactic reaction and so um, I always have EpiPens here And I take them whenever I take my bees to school, even though with an observation hive, uh, a lot of times, especially outside, uh, my bees can't get out, but other bees will come in and everybody thinks my bees are getting out, but their sense of smell is so uh, unique. Oh, interesting. In about 30 minutes, um, localized bees will come and that includes yellow jackets and other wasp species as well so and are uh, they beneficial like what's the you know let's talk about why we hear bees are so beneficial and then we'll talk about are those species good as well can we kill wasps or not um, (laughs) i got a lot in my backyard they hide under the wood You can, and as the summer goes on, especially where I am in Pennsylvania, probably where you are, as you get closer and closer to September, Yellow Jackets population grow and grow and grow. It's hard to have a picnic without uh, getting uninvited guests, but there are benefits to, in my opinion, all critters have a benefit to them. We just don't look hard enough and we don't want to tolerate some of them. Um, To me, I love seeing a bear out in the wild, but I sure don't like seeing them in my backyard where I might have 10, 12 beehives. So yellow jackets uh, kill some aphids and some other things, but they do not pollinate. Um, uh, They're more more meat eaters than honeybees that are vegetarian. Interesting. So why do we need bee? What's the, why are we finding out now that we need bees and, what they what what what's the benefit what do they do there's native pollinators honeybees are not native they are uh, naturalized to the united states they've been here roughly as long as the mayflower has been here and so um some people are on the side of the fence that say uh we should manage for native pollinators but bees have been here long enough that agriculture is is really strongly reliant upon them let's just use let's just say that you want to raise uh raspberries and blackberries and you just want to let native pollinators take care of that if you have a box of bees for every half acre of raspberries and blackberries that you are producing you will at least double if not triple your berry production if you have the bees there. So they are responsible for about 75 to 80% of pollination for agriculture. And um, I have a poster that I've put up before, a breakfast without pollinators and a breakfast with pollinators. So if you like uh, cream in your coffee, if you like pastries, if you like fruits, uh, jam on your, you know, strawberry preserves on your toast, yeah. uh, your breakfast would be bland and most of your meals would be bland without uh, pollinators. And bees are the best, one of the best pollinators. And uh, one of the reasons are there's a term called floral constancy. 
floral constancy is all involved in the dynamic. It's such a tight social structure that all the bees have a position and a job to do, depending on their age and uh, um, the time of year. Okay. And so uh, a scout bee goes out and looks for nectar or pollen. It comes back and it shares information and it does what's called, you may have heard of the waggle dance. It does a figure eight shape and it wag, it, it, it <laughs> vibrates and it, and it does a dance. But in that dance, it communicates visually by the dance. It's telling the other bees, look at me, I've got some information to share with you. And when they come up to that bee, it'll stop, share from proboscis to proboscis or mouth to mouth, the taste of the nectar. And it shares the exact location up to three miles, the color of the bloom, the taste of the nectar. So it's sharing the information for the flower. And so I challenge you, if you even, you know, non-beekeepers can go out and check, check me on this, but that scout gives information and that bee follows it to a T. It goes out. Let's say there's apple trees in bloom and dandelions on the ground in bloom. One bee gets the information to only go to dandelions and it will never go to any other flower during its collection. And so because they have uh, hairy bodies, the worker, worker bees have hair on their bodies. Yellow jackets don't. They're shiny and smooth. That's why they're not great pollinators. But yellow um, honeybees will then go from dandelion to dandelion to dandelion to dandelion, go back until the dandelion nectar and pollen is consumed for that day. Then they'll find another bee scout doing a waggle dance and pick up another flower. And they'll consistently, that's why apples to apples, peaches to peaches, um, and like flower to like flower, that's why they are, they're, they're constant in their floral gathering. So the nectar, so their pollination is way better than just a random, I go to a clover plant, to a dandelion, to right. an apple, and you're not going to get the pollination. And so that's what makes um, honeybees so much more valuable for the pollination. The the almond, or as they say in California, the almond producers require specifically honeybees to do the pollination. And they want to see one box for every acre of uh, trees that they have. And so beekeepers make money by doing pollination service. The blueberries up in um, New England, the uh, citrus fruit in Florida, the, the almonds in California and other places as well on a micro environment rather than trucking and hauling them. So they've become workers for agriculture, for food production here in the United States. Ben, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I and you're you're very articulate. I'm talking with Ben Cooper. He's a beekeeper about the merits of bees. We hear a lot about this. So here's a question I have. Are the bees they 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 take pollen or they take something out of these flowers and pass it to the next one? Or they're bringing something from the hive and putting it in? And where does the honey come in? I'm that's oh, where I'm confused. They'll collect, Heidi, they'll collect three different things. They need water. Okay. And so they need that for their survival. They need pollen. That is protein. Okay. And the nectar is carbohydrates. Just like you and I, we need protein and carbohydrates in order to live and survive and water. And so uh, they go out and they pack pollen in their pollen sacks on their hind legs, but they have hair on their bodies, and so there's a positive and negative. The pollen actually sticks like static electricity to the bee's body, and so when it goes in to collect pollen off of the anthers of a flower, then it gets coated with pollen, and as it goes to the next flower, it then spreads that pollen onto another flower that allows for pollination, and then fruit production as well. Uh, vine crops, for example, if you like melons and squashes, they have a male flower and a female flower. And they have to rely on some insect 
to pollinate, to connect the two. And so uh, bees are very uh, ad- adapted well for for that, as opposed to wasps, which are your wasp and yellow jacket family. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't. They might go and eat something. The nectar then is brought back. The nectar then is brought back to the hive. Bees have two stomachs, their digestive stomach, and the other stomach is just a storage tank. And so the nectar then gets uh, regurgitated. An enzyme is is put in that in the stomach of in that storage capacity, and then they will start reducing all the nectar in the cells to sixteen percent. At sixteen percent moisture, then the bees will stop start capping off that honey, and that's the perfect moisture content for them to be able to have moisture in the winter months, to have enough moisture for their body, but they also have that that energy level as well as the carbohydrates that they need and for food in the winter time. But uh, they are mathletes. They know what 16% is. They know how far they can fly. If I took, if I took worker bees and took them two miles away from home, if they've already oriented at their hive location, they got to be about two weeks old to be able to do that. But a two-week-old honeybee, I could take them away, just like a homing pigeon, they will find their way back to the box. They fly up to three miles, and workers, there's, of course, the queen, a worker, and a drone. Drone are the males. They don't sting. Um, But the workers are named because they do all the work. They, they do everything. It's a female-dominated uh, society. Here in the North, I saw that eye roll. Uh, <laughs> I, I look at it, Tommy going, yeah, right. It's a, uh, yeah. And I also heard the males don't sting, which I assume means the females do. <laughs> Touche. The females, <laughs> females do. And the females up here in the northern part of uh, where we get winters and cold climate, they kick the males out of their hive around uh, the end of October. <laughs> die to freeze to death and die and start and then the queen will relay eggs um there's so much information that try to pack to me like trying to do my 15 hour course in in a short time ben i was just gonna say to you i'm so fascinated by this i I mean i feel like i'd like to take your course you're you're so articulate and um, so well, knowledgeable, but you're you're like piquing my interest. The other well, thing I, I have to laugh about is that you can take them two miles away and they come home. Yeah. You take away a GPS from a teenager. I don't know if they can get, <laughs> get home. Well, here's one of the other things that's so fascinating about bees. And the more I study and learn about bees, the more I realize I need to study and learn more about oh, bees. Oh, my goodness. That makes sense. It's, it's the most bees... Yes, they're insects, but they are animals. So it fits with your podcast. They are animals. Yeah. I had to testify to the state of Maryland that bees are considered animals because the Maryland law says a beekeeper, uh, they anticipated their understanding of the law saying uh, a landowner that has animals can protect their animals from bear attacks. Okay. But those that were in charge says the law says animals and, and insects, bees are insects, so they're not animals. And I went and had to testify twice to Maryland legislation to change their thinking um, that when I went to school, there was only two categories that life felt fell into, the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom. Yeah, exactly. And so bees are not plants. So they are part of the the animal kingdom, and they're insect and in, insect today in, and um, uh, are part of spiders and all those creepy things. They're animals as well. They're just different uh, different classifications. That's how I would think of it as well. Growing up with animals, even though it wasn't insects or that, but it's always confusing to me as well because I agree there were plants and animals. So. Um, Here's know. one of the here's one of the main things. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, kind of I guess I don't want to say bait you with a question, but um, Tommy, how, you take this one. <laughs> you can take this one. How many people or plant or, or animals do you know that determine the sex of their offspring? How many 
before before they're born before they're before they're, they're even generated i didn't know that that was even possible honeybees are one of two species that predetermines before the queen lays an egg she measures each cell just if you imagine a feeler gauge the depth and the width of it based on that she will if you picture in your in your mind the letter y and one side is ovaries and the other is a spermaceca and she fertilizes all the female eggs inside her body and lays a fertile egg or if it's a bigger size cell she lays an infertile egg which will be a male and she determines that based on the size of the cell that she does an inspection of she goes in head first and then he determines what she will lay. Fertilization takes place inside, and then she will back in. And actually, you can. She will make a a, a, a loud um, grunt when an egg is laid, and each egg has the has the has the ability based on whether it's fertile or not to be a male or female. And then they have different maturation process days to mature uh, based on what they are and what they are fed. Any female can be a queen. All the female bees have ovaries, but they can't mate after they're about three weeks old. So a queen bee gets fed an extra high protein food. Now, now, Tommy, you said you, 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 you're around dogs and stuff. If you remember um, years ago, if you had a big dog, let's say a Newfoundland or a German Shepherd mm-hmm. or um, a St. Bernard, they would say, well, they're all predisposed to hip dysplasia and they have hip problems. Yep, genetic issues. Veterinarian said it wasn't genetics. It was the food that they got. And about 30 years ago, Perina came out with puppy chow for large breed dogs. So their femur and their hip would grow at the right rate rather than feeding just a generic. It was all nutrition. And so nutrition, if a egg that is fertilized, that could be just a regular worker is fed Royal jelly throughout its development that will become a queen. So the workers, the queen's not in charge. The workers are in charge to make new queens, to replace a queen, to kill a queen if she's not doing her job, and to make new ones based on the food source that they get. So uniquely, hopefully that's new information that a queen is determined by her nutrition, not by voting or whatever. (laughs) Um, Cutthroat. Yeah. determines before an egg is laid before an egg leaves her body whether it be a male or female wow and that's just amazing and for the last 25 years people say bees are in trouble right there's colony collapse disorder that they don't know what to call it and it's all based on uh one of the things that we've gotten from another country yeah bees are naturalized but Mites are their biggest enemy. Equal to bees being um, threatened by mites, um, the second closest threat they have is uninformed beekeepers. What What do you mean mites? Like we're talking the little... Just imagine we're talking ticks to humans. Okay. Yep. So Interesting. Okay. A small little mite, they used to think that it would suck the hemolymph, which was the blood of the bee, just like a tick would suck the blood of us and vector diseases. Well, the Varroa destroyer is the name, is a genus and species name of this mite. When I teach, I tell kids or adults, if you make a fist and stick it on your body, that's about the size equivalent to a mite versus a bee. And they used to be able to see bees with mites on their backs and say, well, they're sucking the blood out of them, the hemolymph. But, um, Dr. Ramsey uh, did a uh, his doctorate on studying the mites, and they actually go for adipose tissue. For the common name is that's fat cells, yeah. and so bees build up. They don't hibernate in the winter, but they all but they all need to get fat over winter. And if you've got something sucking the fat out of you, 
your bees are anemic going into a rough time in the winter up in the north, and a lot of people lose their bees over winter. And so if you don't treat for mites, you won't have bees very long. Um, and so so wow. you have to do that. And there's about 12 different ways. I use five different ways to treat for mites. One of them is a harsh chemical. That's my last treatment of the year after all the young are hatched out and ready. But, you know, one of the other strange things is the lifespan of a worker bee. It takes 21 days to develop in a cell, just like a chicken and an egg. But they only live six weeks. They work themselves to death. They log so many fly miles in, air miles in, that they, they're called workers because they work themselves to death. That same bee that hatches out in late October can live four months because it's not flying. There's no food source out there and they stay. They don't hibernate. They're actually in a constant rotation eating honey and they warm their hives. They're, they're tempered. Their, their comfort zone for temperature is 92, 93 degrees in the winter as well. So the queen likes that temperature. And so the bees have to keep her warm. They get a mouthful of honey from somewhere in the hive. They drill next to the queen, and then they have the ability to detach their wings from the muscles that work them. And so it looks like they're shivering. When you shiver, you burn calories and you create heat. And that's how they, they don't heat the whole box. They heat the cluster of bees. What becomes hard then is, (coughs) excuse me, when the, in February, the queen starts laying new eggs and you got to have enough bees to keep those eggs blanketed and warm at 92 degrees. If we get a long duration of a cold spell and the bees will cover those young to the point of death for this, they will, they will protect them to the point of death and loss of entire hive. So for the next generation, very few animals and critters on this planet think about the next generation. They might, you know, a robin might work with the bee, the, the birds in their nest, but once they fly, they're not worried about them anymore. Right. They, they move on. Bees worry about the next to the point of they will sacrifice themselves to get the next generation to springtime and warmer temperature. Ben, is it not common to take them inside? Um, They stay outside. I mean, that's the common way to manage them, even in cold weather. Heidi, it's a very tough thing to you have to have. So the warmer it is, the more honey they eat. And they eat because the warmer it is, they'll fly about 42, 43 degrees. When it gets that warm, they'll go out and fly and look for food. If they fly and don't find anything, they consume everything in their hive and they run out and they starve to death. Wow. If you climate control them up in Canada, they bring them in and climate control them and keep them maybe, let's say, about 35 degrees where they can do this rolling over of eating honey and warming the queen and everything. But when we get warm days and then cold days and long cold spells, and it's sporadic as climate change happens, uh, we have a hard time as beekeepers. Uh, I'm right there at the Mason Dixon line between, I live a mile from Maryland. And so one of the hardest places to keep bees because we can have a 75 degree day in January and we can have a five degree day within days. I've seen the temperature drop pushing pushing 55 degrees in one day. And that is hard on those colonies. And so they'll bust their cluster and go out and fly and then they'll recluster and they might not cluster next to food source. And so you have to be able to know where your bees are in the wintertime and, and their food availability is there. And so it's a management issue. So it's, it takes a lot more. You just don't put bees in a hive and then go out and get honey and uh, keep doing it because um, there's a lot of things, climate and pests and other things that are there to kind of throw a monkey wrench in the hole. Well, you just kind of alluded to one of my questions, which is, so Tommy and I, again, manage horses and such. So that's daily care several times a day. If you're a beekeeper, are you, are you managing your bees daily? Is it a couple, do they, are they kind of self-sufficient 
or are you out there daily? Is it weekly? What's that scenario look like? It depends on the time of year. Think of yourself more maybe of like a beef cattle operation. Mm -hmm. Calving happens at a certain time. Now there's bees being born or hatched um, all every 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 day. A queen will lay a good queen will lay a thousand to twelve hundred eggs a day. That means twenty one days later, a thousand to twelve hundred are hatching, and that's happening all during the growing season when it's warm. And there's floral source out there for food, nectar, and pollen. But in the winter months, you don't have to manage them as much. When you open up a box, you're releasing some of the heat that is already there. So you have, it's a timing thing. You got to get in, get out and check and see what's going on. But if they're out of the, out of food, they're going to be all the way up to the very top lid of the box and run out of food. So okay, you got to know where your bees are. If they have eggs, they're going to be stalled out where the eggs are. It might not be the top and they can run out of food then. A classic uh, uh, way of realizing that your bees starved is that they're dead and their heads are all in the cell looking for, that's like having somebody die with a refrigerator open right. looking for more yeah. scrap for food or a cupboard open. And um, Can you provide food for them or not? Yes. You yes. can. Sugar blocks, uh, moisture is an enemy in the wintertime because it will create, just imagine if you have your bathroom 90 degrees because you just took a hot bath and outside it's 20 degrees, you get moisture on your window, Mm -hmm. condensation. That happens in a beehive in the wintertime and moisture is your enemy because it's raining or dripping moisture on bees in the wintertime. And so you have to manage that temperature by allowing ventilation, maybe insulation on the top, and some other things. So again, it goes back to management. So many people try beekeeping. If they do it on their own, they try, they get bees, they lose them. They get bees the second year, they lose them. They're frustrated the third year. And then they ask me, do you want to buy all my equipment for about half the price of what I just paid for all this stuff? And I'll say, I I don't, but I know somebody that would. And so I I kind of market, market their stuff to other people that are starting. And I try to tell them, you know, Get a mentor, take a beekeeping class, know what you're doing before you spend that first dollar of buying equipment and realizing it actually, it's just like having a puppy. Those first formative months are crucial and there's less maintenance as you go on. And so timing of the year, springtime bees, they reproduce by having individual bees hatch out, but they reproduce by swarming. They've outgrown their space so the queen and a bunch of them leave. And so preventing that or controlling that, taking that queen with some frames and starting a new hive makes it a much better than having your neighbor call and say, there's bees on the side of my house or you know, they're in my Come house now. <laughs> Come get your bees. I jokingly say, um, how do you know they're mine? Because there's wild bees as well. Mine all have lip tattoos. And so if you can't read them, then you can't tell that they're mine. And that, that's I love it. Same way if somebody says one of my bees, you know, if somebody gets stung by a yellow jacket, it's my bees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's a yellow jacket. But how do, tell me about honey. Um, so I'm a tea drinker. We always hear about different types of honey, raw honey and that. It, I don't know, you know, if that's part of the, the beekeeping thing to know about honey, but what's yeah. the best way to get honey? And, you know, is that they produce honey or they're eating honey? I'm, I guess I'm confused about that. Both. Okay. They honey for eating. So here in the north, it's good to save 75 to 100 pounds of honey in each hive. So they have food sources for them to winter over. Okay. And um, anytime you're... Bees can make a um, hundred pounds of honey or more. That's great. Yeah. I had probably this past year, my best honey production. The weather was odd, but it was good for flower source, except for three weeks of no rain in May. Um, but they had honey stored already up. They start consuming. If they run out of flower source, they consume their own honey. Okay. But and honey will last indefinitely if it's capped. If it's capped in its comb, it will stay good forever. Even if it dries out and crystallizes, 
All you have to do is warm it up and it's still good. It's the only food source that is good indefinitely that will last forever. Um, How do I find the right honey? Like what am I looking for in honey when I'm buying it? um, Your tongue. Your your taste might like something. Let me ask you, Heidi, do you like dark chocolate or milk chocolate? I prefer milk chocolate, but I think dark is better for you. <laughs> um, my wife, my wife doesn't eat white cho- or you know light chocolate, milk chocolate. She eats dark chocolate. Okay, and I don't like it at all. I don't okay. like. It. So there's two types of honey. If you go to a grocery store, or supermarket, some big place, um, and look at the honey, it's all the same color. Mm-hmm. That's because it's homogenized, mixed, and all blended together. Uh, I take my honey off throughout the growing season to get the benefit. Every flower has its own color of honey and its own flavor of honey. Interesting. And so that's called artisan honey when you take it off at different. So I can say this is locust honey or this is uh, tulip poplar honey or this is whatever is in that bloom period um, that they're getting the source from. And there's 12 different classifications of color of honey. And lighter doesn't always mean best tasting. It's based on your taste and what you like. Um, if you've heard of the the lantern fly, which is a problem, a pest problem, that Japanese lantern fly, they actually excrement on trees and things. Bees will come and take that extra excrement and make honey out of it. They call it honeydew. And that's sold as legally as honey, as a honey product, but it has a completely different t- taste um, than what you have. Some people like buckwheat honey, which is a darker, bolder, more robust flavor. And others like the locust honey, which is sweeter, or the clover honey, which is somewhere in between. And so you see a label and you basically have to trust the beekeeper that it is what it is. The only way you can really tell is if it wasn't ultra purified and heated, you don't want heated honey because when you heat honey above 150 degrees, you destroy some of the natural antioxidants and benefits that it has. So if your tea tea is over 150 degrees, it's not going to matter because it's not going to be that helpful. Here's, uh, put it on your uh, cereal or something, cold cereal, or eat it in the raw state because if you heat it, it you destroy it some of the benefits. And somebody will, you probably heard this, if you have allergies that are local. Right, yeah. Take local honey. Well, if you follow the science, I've had those shots all and up and down my arm. And the one that I most react to is is dust mites. Okay. My bees do not make honey from dust. There's no pollen. There's no fire. So that's not going to help me. Yeah. But ragweed is my second one. They don't make any honey from ragweed, but they do collect the pollen. So if I don't want to get the shots and I want to use natural benefits of, of uh, bee products, I will try to get pollen that is collected during the ragweed season. That's a golden yellow pollen. And then I consume that. And that will help me with my allergy. You got to follow if it's if it's pine trees. Pines pine trees have pollen, but they don't have nectar. So you have to follow the science and see if a plant has uh, um, if a plant doesn't produce pollen or or nectar, and you're allergic to it, it's not going to help you. Um, I've actually had saw my bees getting uh, poison ivy will produce a flower. And the bees have gotten onto poison ivy flowers. Oh, no. I still get poison ivy. I don't know if there was enough of it. If it takes a bee in its lifetime, a worker bee uh, in its lifetime, um, only makes one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. Uh, It takes a lot of flowers to make a pound or a jar of it so you got to look at a lot of stuff out there so fascinating uh, hey i don't know if you've heard about this but i talk about elephants on my podcast a lot and um in range countries they have a problem with everybody thinks poaching is the big problem the actual problem is human animal conflict right 
And so you've got a villager with rice paddies or whatever their crop is, and the elephants are hungry and they're, you know, roaming around. They'll, they'll go in and eat the villagers' crop, and then the villagers kill an endangered species, right? So one of the management tools, and I don't know if you've heard about this, are beehives. So they, they, they serve a couple of purposes. They put them like there's a fence line, but the elephants can just move the fence, right? But they put beehives at a certain intervals. Elephants are afraid of them, right? They don't, even though it probably wouldn't even pierce their skin. But so they, they're the benefit of the honey and the whole, the, the sustainability of the bees. And it's keeping the elephants on the other side of the fence. I don't know if you've heard about that, but well, it's here's, here's really bees, cool. Here's what bees go to. Two locations on a, when they go to defend them. Remember, when they defend themselves, they die shortly thereafter. When they sting, they die. The stinger gets pulled out. The venom sac is there. So they're almost eviscerated when they sting. Interesting. And so that venom sac keeps pumping while it's in gauged in skin. But bees are wise enough to know that they go for their prey, predator's eyes or throat. Interesting. And so they can still do damage. A bee sting to a human eye, you can lose your eyesight. Wow. Wow. Just imagine what it would be like if a needle got stuck in your eye. Yeah. My goodness. The eyelid, not so much. It'll swell up and get puffy. But the eye, they know enough to go to these the weak, spots. The weak points, yeah. And I grew up around elephants, and I could see where if they came up against a hive with all the buzz and the noise, they would back away, you know, they would back away from it. So it's really interesting management tool, and it's kind of a win-win. Um, so, Ben, I'm gonna, we're going to wrap it up. I... We could go on all day. My goodness, you're you're a wealth of knowledge. What would you like to? So, people who listen to this podcast are typically people who you know. We live in a more urban society. If you grew up, I think you said you grew up on a dairy farm. We're more urbanized. I think up to ninety four percent of the United States are urbanites. So we're kind of removed from animals and agriculture and stuff. So um, maybe just some last words of wisdom uh, for people. Some guidance for people who become fascinated by this or have been interested in uh, beekeeping and such. If you don't want to be a beekeeper, but you want to help the plight of bees and native versus uh, naturalized bees, whether it's native bees or the honeybees, um, there's things that you can do. If you have property, you can plant flowers that bloom throughout the year, different species that start in early spring and then you continue and provide, make your real estate uh, more attractive for pollinators uh, by going to, um, you know, a seed source somewhere. Um, there's lots of them, but finding out the bloom periods and stretching that from spring all the way to fall. And, and you can provide bloom source. You might not get lots of honey from that. If you don't have a lot of space, um, I don't know, a lot of people love feeding birds. Bees, when there's no flowers out there and they need protein in the late winter, early spring, will go to a bird feeder because there's cracked corn and dust in there. That's protein for them. They will go into bird feeders and spin around and collect dust from the cracked corn and bring it back. So, and that's because I, I always would get calls say there's bees trying to build a nest in my bird feeder. No, they're trying to get protein. They need it. They're starving for protein. You can actually buy protein substitute and put it out and provide a bee feeder as well. And you can go to uh, any um, Man Lake bee supply, other bee supplies. Then you can buy the protein substitute that provides feed at the crucial time. For me, it's the month of March, the beginning of April, when the bees are trying to feed young and they don't have the resources to do that because the flowers aren't there. So you can actually do things uh, to um, yeah. help, promote, help promote native and the naturalized bees. And they can, uh, if you provide my email address or whatever, I can direct them to uh, some of the other places or some of the resources that are available to help you get a planning mix um, 
for wildflowers for pollinators. We'll certainly do that. There's also something and, called Nomo November, uh, Nomo right. May. Right. Right. And I've been working with Cumberland, Maryland, trying to get them on board with uh, becoming a B-City USA, a member of B-City. And so there's certain things that you uh, you need to do uh, to make your city or uh, a, um, a pollinator friendly habitat. The other thing I would say is support a local beekeeper. Don't buy the honey off of the shelf that came from another country and it just happens to have a U.S. label on it, go ahead and find out where your local beekeepers are at a farmer's market or something and support a local beekeeper because uh, you're going to help sustain beekeeping and pollination in your local area, which is good for sustainability. That's great. I love it. Excellent. It's been so, so great to have you as a guest. I've learned a lot, and I think you've probably peaked a lot of people's interests. So thank you. And we'll probably do this again because you're just a wealth of information. Thank you, Ben. Thank you both. Wow. That was such a cool episode. The bee, uh, the beekeeper, Ben, what a wealth of knowledge. And um, as I say in every episode, go see for yourself when you can check out, I'm going to do that. Actually, I'm going to look online and see and I'll, I'll post the link in show notes um, where there are local beekeepers yeah. where I am here because I'd like to get the honey directly from them. Uh, I haven't really seen it up here. I know Pinellas. at home we have a lot of uh, farmer's markets. Yeah, so that's probably another place yeah. to find it. I see um, it a lot there. Yeah, so I'm going to look for that. But um, you check out the show notes because I'll put he wanted me to put his email in there. So if you're a beekeeper or have interest reach out to him. Obviously he would love to talk with you about bees. Fascinating. Um, I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Rate and review it so people know what your thoughts are about it. And by all means, share it. It's the best way for us to uh, get into other people's homes and have them listen to us as well. So thank you for joining me and I hope you'll join me next time for more Animal Tales.